0: Imagine you're on the back of a garbage truck, winding its way down the streets of Sydney in the late hours of the night or the wee hours of the morning, you're tired, you're a bit smelly, you're on a night shift, probably one of many that you've done, and you look out. You'd see your colleagues picking up waste and trash on the streets. But you probably would see a whole bunch of other people. You would probably see the bartenders leaving their shops and bars. You would probably see other street cleaners. You would see police, ambulance personnel, security staff. I've been on a few of those garbage trucks in Sydney, Dubai, in Singapore, in London. Luckily as a pretend night shift worker, studying the logistics of waste. And I remember thinking, wow, there's a lot of people working at 3am.
1: Cities After Dark, a global view of urban night a podcast series from Connected Cities at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Shelby
0: Bassett. And hi, I'm Michele Acuto. I'm director of Connected Cities.
1: Tonight, we look at the people who keep cities going, nighttime workers. And it's a lot of
0: workers. The production of the nighttime economies is really rarely talked about. What we tend to talk about is the party goers and the club goers and the people that consume those services. And we very, very fast forget the hundreds of thousands of people that keep the night ticking. How do they do it? How many do it? How do they get to their night shift? You don't really need to be on a garbage truck to see that. Just look outside of your windows or peer outside of your restaurant from time to time.
1: So you said night workers keep cities ticking. What do you mean?
0: We imagine night workers and night shifts uh, to be about being a bartender or being a restaurant waiter. And that's very true. But actually, the majority of night workers are nurses and health practitioners. And they are logistics workers driving trucks to supermarkets to restock them. Or, as we started, night time waste managers. So it's very much about... Keeping the streets clean, keeping the supermarkets stocked, fixing things that have broken.
1: So, are night workers only there to service the day workers?
0: Well, many are, but not only in service of the daytime. It's an economy of its own as well. If you think about it, the waste management industry is a $430 billion reality. And there's a lot of 24 hour activities that are parts of systems that require nighttime shifts. with hundreds of thousands of nurses and logistics workers. And at the same time, there's a lot of night systems uh, that have been exponentially growing, like delivery and rideshare, that are designed predominantly for the nighttime. It's quite a lot of people. It's uh, 15 million Americans, one in nine Australians. Uh, Let's not just count them as daytime
2: service people.
1: If you heard our last episode, you'll remember we talked about how the night is a blind spot in the structure of our 24 hours. Nighttime is often forgotten. This means these people who work at night are inadvertently excluded.
0: Absolutely. And excluded from where it actually matters. There are big issues on how we allow night shift workers to actually do their job. There's still too little emphasis in policies and plans and governance of cities and of states And we actually have a lot of science about this. We know a lot about how night shifts uh, are connected to higher risk of diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, stress, heart disease, even linked to cancer. And these are mostly low-paying, precarious jobs, uh, mostly taken up by people that don't come from those places. And this is not just a story of developed countries. But in fact, also in the global south, where the number of nighttime shift workers increases even further if you account for the informal sector.
1: Yeah, exactly. This particularly affects those who are already marginalized during the day, like migrant
2: workers. Somewhere between 18% to 24% between sectors, you you have foreign-born workers that support this uh, London uh, evening and nighttime economy. And, and that's one of the reasons why migrants matter for the nighttime economy, because you would find that night work is mostly done by migrants.
1: I spoke to JC Macquarie, a nocturnal anthropologist at the Central European University.
2: The migrants' workers' subjectivities is not simply expressed through discourse, uh, but in the bodily responses to a regime of uh, discipline that seeks to extract as much use from the labouring body as possible, living it exhausted and and, and spent. The difference between those whose lives uh, may be fostered and taken care of and and those disposable bodies who can be left in neglect and death. Uh, In terms of uh, working at night, it's equally important to understand contemporary capitalism points out that laborers are caught up so much in these physical demands of night work so much so that the forms of solidarities uh, have, have become so fragile and, and secondary to their experience of being used up and spent by the physical labor. Migrant workers are not only pushed into this precarious work, but also experience diminished sense of, of self-worth, lack of respect and, and fairness and unfair allocation of resources and lack of self-esteem. And this is magnified by several degrees when, when we talk about night workers.
1: Working at night can lead to different rhythms than those of daytime workers. This can be precarious.
2: Day workers, too, experience precarity in work, poverty, unstable income, and insecure jobs, which is what precarity is often framed as. But precarity of night work is overwhelmingly experienced by migrants because of these three aspects that cannot be disentangled. In terms of the impact and the experiences uh, migrant night workers face, the most important ones are the the physical dimension where being up and alert at night is very difficult. The second aspect is of social nature. They find it very difficult to socialize not only within the family and friends because the gatherings take place uh, usually at night, but on, on a larger scale, participate in sort of collective activities. So anything that means to collectively organize and defend their rights and improve their working conditions is out of question because they are so spent on that physical labor and sleepless nights. Because of the working conditions, which are very demanding, because they work on the opposite rhythms and times to regulate this, they cannot engage with these authorities, say cities' authorities, managing, you know, site authorities, and therefore it's, it's, it's difficult for them to progress.
1: Of course, we shouldn't pigeonhole migrants into being only workers. Sujan Yeo is a lecturer at the University of British Columbia.
3: I'm currently joining you from UBC, Vancouver, located on the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam people.
1: She told me about her nighttime research in Singapore. There, she saw that the night can be a social good for migrant workers.
3: Sunday in Little India is buzzing with a mix of patrons, you have locals who do their shopping in Little India as well, tourists, and on top of that, migrant workers. Their embodiment of informal practices might, to some, be jarring because, again, there are sociocultural norms that dictate what some might deem to be appropriate or inappropriate or acceptable and non-acceptable. The informal practices of South Asian male migrant workers in Little India, there's a specificity to it. And that includes activities like sitting on the curbside, socializing in groups, large groups on the curbside, reading newspaper while standing and occupying, blocking perhaps the sidewalk. It includes spontaneous games. Carom, for example, is one popular game that just springs up in the alleyway. So, When we recognize that nightscapes like that found in Little India is more than just about economics, there is a social good to it because for South Asian male migrant workers, it is a place to find kinship, a place to find rest and respite away from the work life. And it allows them to develop a routine when, in fact, their time in Singapore is very transient.
1: night has a way of enabling people to reimagine and repurpose spaces often not for economic benefit but for social benefit i talked about this with amelia smeds from university college of london
3: Change here for Bekelew and lines. This is
4: Victoria Line train to Brixton. If you consider a place like Brixton in London, which has you know been um, kind of rapidly gentrified as a result of the dynamics in London's housing market, um, now it's a big hub for nightlife, people going out and so on. But to what extent is the public space in Brixton? Catering to sort of a broad cross-section of people who have lived there for a long time as well as people who want to enjoy some of the most recent facilities and really how's that experience of all those public spaces in Brixton's town centre, which is really vibrant at night, but how has that kind of changed over time, the uses and kind of the meanings of some of those places um, to people. Please stand clear of the
3: closing doors.
0: I know that spot. That's where I used to take the 432 bus for my commute back in my late research nights in London. And it's pretty packed with workers and migrants leaving the south of the city. And I think it brings up the question of where do the night shift workers go? How do they get to their shift how complex is a commute for a nurse or for a shop worker? Moving people at night is a critical part of the conversation in night shifts. And that's definitely something that Emilia and her colleague Jenny MacArthur, also from University College London, have thought a lot about.
5: When we think about moving it, night, often there can be a bias towards certain kinds of travelers or or travel needs. And what we saw in London was that when their nighttime economy agenda was launched a couple of years ago. If we look back to sort of the history of the, where this idea came from. Uh, it came from the recognition that the sort of nightlife venues in London were really struggling because the property prices sort of still are extremely high, and they when they tracked the numbers of uh, nightlife venues that were available, they were dropping. That was actually the trigger for this policy. And so then they had a a big focus on the nighttime economy and trying to support that. And one of the ways of doing that was to extend the tube to have services during the night. Um, Now, of course, nightlife venues do have a really important role in the urban economy. But when we went from that particular issue to the nighttime economy more broadly, the focus was heavily uh, biased towards helping people who had gone to nighttime venues to get around the city and to get home at night and overlooked that when we look at the nighttime economy you have these huge populations of uh, people working in logistics and healthcare a huge variety of functions often essential services they've always had to travel at night and they haven't often had very good quality services the key insight from that research we found was that when you talk about the nighttime economy and mobility at night, you can't just focus on people who are out to consume and out for leisure. Those activities are important, but the workers who are traveling, who might have irregular schedules, who are shift workers, their needs are so important. And it's very rare to find in cities across the world really good examples of where they've catered for that in their nighttime travel planning.
4: Yeah, that's right. That was really interesting piece of research that kind of opened up, I guess, then a whole new perspective on the unequal opportunities and how the nighttime can be a space that's sort of really quite important or quite dominated by people who may be marginalized in different ways, either that or more subversive activities, I guess. But um, there's a lot of evidence across the board, beyond the nighttime workers that we looked at, that there's really inequitable opportunities for enjoying nightlife. In the case of people of colour, in kind of uh, accessing safe pedestrian, you know, well-lit sidewalks, um, different types of, maybe it can even extend to taxi services or whatever, different types of services, you know, for low-income people, women, And and again, going back to to people of color, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of racial policing of nighttime space, issues with some people who work in the nightlife industry, like bouncers and things like that. So yeah, the the daytime is sort of the dominant hour of society, I guess, where we plan for white men. And I guess that extends to, to the nighttime as well. But the differences between planning and needs is perhaps even more stark.
1: This sounds like we need to rethink how we move in cities at night.
5: One of the main challenges is that there isn't actually a very good understanding of what people need and their travel patterns and what they're travelling for. So I think there's a real risk of thinking about nighttime transport as just sort of an extension of the daytime and just a matter of having more services. Now, while the services are, are important, I think it, there's a risk that we just try and sort of duplicate daytime transport for the night and not appreciating the slightly more complex needs of people travelling to and from work. Do they have, uh, for example, caring responsibilities? Do they have to do some shopping or, or something on the way to work or, or- or on the way home? Do they have different concerns around safety, um, around the reliability of, of you know, getting to work on time? It's much more complex. And so I think the key challenge um, is just the lack of understanding. A lot more research needs to be done to understand that properly. And the other side of that is that the nighttime activity and mobility for cities is such a key part of making it function. But again, one of the key challenges is that a lot of the infrastructure is just not designed or planned to really cater for that and really appreciate the essential role of those activities at night.
4: I think from the perspective of the kind of new mobilities paradigm laid out by people like John Uri, Mimi Scheller and Tim Cresswell, I actually think it's more about people moving so perhaps not about the government planning about moving people and how people are to be moved around but more about individual bodies and and people uh, moving and it might include things like dwelling in public spaces walking skateboarding I don't know some people extend mobility at night to sort of um, all types of bodily movement like enjoying nightlife dancing etc so I think that perspective on mobility might be quite relevant to faculties of the built environment, like Melbourne School of Design, which actually considers the design, I guess, of urban space across a really wide range of scales. So it might be from an individual building, uh, how people use a building at night to public spaces, um, maybe the street. Or then kind of urban morphology at a greater scale. Things like um, defensible space and the design of housing, for example, which is related to safety and so quite related to the nighttime. So, yeah, I think that broader lens is quite useful. Thinking just in terms of this thing of who moves the furthest, the fastest, the most often. What are the kind of inequalities or differences in how we move at night? How safe do we feel And those are some good questions to ask to start unpacking the politics of that.
0: The way to attend to the needs of those workers that move at night might be simple. We need to listen. We need to listen to the workers that operate in the background of those who consume the night. We need to amplify the voices of the often silenced heroes of maintenance and healthcare into the policy and politics that shape the nighttime.
1: This has been a really valuable conversation. We spent this episode talking about workers, but a really important part about working is also equity and access. And that's something that we'll be covering in our next episode, The Right to the Night.
0: A big thank you to Julius Caesar-McQuarrie, Emilia Smets, Jenny MacArthur, Sujan and of course, my wonderful co-host, Shelby Bassett.
1: You can find more information about the work of our lab and the researchers in this podcast in our show notes. And you can join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag CitiesAfterDark. Connected Cities acknowledges the Indigenous peoples of the lands upon which we work and meet to create this podcast. For us at University of Melbourne, we pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Wherever in the world you're listening to this, we invite you to pause and consider the traditional owners of the land upon which you stand.